Amen. The Lord is worthy of our worship and our praise. Let's go to him in prayer uh, before we begin uh, with God's word. Father, I thank you for this morning and I pray for each individual person here that you would give them the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. I pray that we would be equipped by your spirit with this inner strength that we need to comprehend this great love. I pray that we would be attentive to your word, that your very words in this text that we read would be what consume us this morning and give us eyes to see that, give us an understanding to know what it is you have for us. I ask that you would make us humble and prepare us for the type of life you have for us on the other side of this text, that we wouldn't just hear it and leave and be unchanged like the man who forgets what he looks like in the mirror, but that we would truly be changed by your truth. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Hebrews chapter 3. We're continuing our study in Hebrews. Let me read verses 1 through 11. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much, as, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. For Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Last week, we spent the majority of our time talking about Jesus as our high priest, as our apostle, and the culmination of everything that we've been discussing in chapters 1 and 2. Because it says, therefore, holy brothers. So we, we try to build up, as it were, to remind ourselves what we've discussed this entire study. And the author has this key phrase. He says, consider Jesus. Set your mind on Jesus. Let all the truths about him, all the majestic things we've just discussed, let those fill your mind. And last week he talked about Jesus being or sharing some similarities with Moses. And that was significant for his point. Because we see in Deuteronomy 18, if you want to go ahead and turn there, there's very important passage in how we understand who Jesus is. Deuteronomy 18. 
beginning in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them all that I command him. So the author of Hebrews writing to a primarily Jewish audience indicates that Jesus shares a similarity with Moses, pointing, I believe, back to this text saying that Jesus is the one who is to come, who was promised to come, who is like Moses. And the Jews had a lot of prophets between Moses and Jesus. But they all knew to some degree that there was still going to be one who came that had the same degree of glory or significance or even perhaps greater glory than Moses. Because all the prophets after Moses, before Christ, were pointing back to the law of Moses. Basically reminding them, this is the covenant God made with you. These are the curses he promised would happen if you disobeyed him. This is what's going to come upon you. And if you repent, here's the blessings that he'll give you. That's the role of basically every prophet past Moses. So when the Pharisees send their spies to John the Baptist, they ask him, are you the prophet? Are you this one that we know is supposed to come? Yeah, Isaiah was great. Jeremiah was cool. Jonah got swallowed by a whale, so that's pretty cool. But we know that there's still one coming who's like Moses. And he hasn't come yet. So the author, I think, is connecting us to this expectation. So we move past that, though, the reason he brings up this similarity is to help us understand how Jesus is greater than Moses. Most of us have a sense in general of the way that Jesus is superior to Moses, right? The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we, being under the new covenant, have an appreciation to some degree of how Jesus is greater. We're like we, we read the Old Testament, we're like law and sacrifice and goats and bulls. That's kind of cumbersome and bloody. So we're glad we're under the new covenant. We can eat bacon now. So Jesus is greater, right? That's our general understanding of how the new covenant and how Je like, yeah, Jesus is greater. He gives us bacon, right? And he forgives us our sins. He is our final sacrifice. We don't have to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem anymore and slaughter our animals to appease God for one more year. And we don't have to hope, wringing our hands, that our high priest has done what he's supposed to do before he goes into the Holy of Holies and sprinkles the blood on the ark. Because if he didn't, he would die and we'd have to find a new high priest. We don't have to worry about those things anymore. Jesus is the final high priest. He's the final sacrifice. It's once for all time, he's done it. So we have a degree of appreciation for the contrast the versus between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But the author here is making the comparison for a different reason. He's not saying that Jesus is greater than Moses, which is what he gets into for this text. He's not just saying that because we appreciate all the benefits or how much better the New Covenant is than the Old Covenant. And grace and truth, those sound a lot better than law. That's not why he makes this comparison. 
That's not why he says Jesus has been counted more of more glory than Moses. If you're paying attention when I read these texts, the reason he brings up this comparison between Jesus and saying that Moses, uh, Jesus has been counted of more glory, counted worthy of more glory than Moses, is to help us understand an intensification. A lot of people look at the Old Testament and they say, wow, that God is wrathful, there's not a lot of love, there's not a lot of mercy and all this, and I think that's completely untrue. God's mercy is seen in Genesis 1.1, but if you want to see it even more displayed, you see it in Genesis 3. How does God respond when he promises death to Adam if he sins? He clothes him, and he promises a redeemer. And you see this theme throughout the Old Testament. God is loving. God does have wrath towards sin, and he is holy. And he demands justice. He demands recompense for sins. In the New Testament, we get an escalation of both. God's love and his grace and his mercy are magnified more, as well as his wrath. There's no other way to understand the cross of Christ. The Son of God battered, bruised, slaughtered. If that's not an intensification over bulls and goats, you don't understand the word intensification. This is why the author brings up this comparison. Jesus has been counted of more glory than Moses. So yeah, the heading in your Bible probably says Jesus is greater than Moses or something like that. The point is to show that Jesus is in the same stream of Moses being the intermediary between God and the people, telling us how we ought to live, the faithful servant of God. But there are some differences. He wants us to appreciate how severe the call to persevere was in the Old Testament. And if that is the case, if the call to persevere was so intense if God's response to the people's unfaithfulness was so intense and so severe that he swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest, then how much more so ought we to hold fast to Christ? This is echoing what we talked about in the beginning of chapter 2. He brings Moses in to show us that this is God's nature If this is the response of God to Moses and his covenant and those who are not faithful to the covenant administered by Moses, how much more will his response be to those who abandon Christ? So let's let's look at this uh, in detail. So in Chapter 3, if you look at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. This is meant to be a logical argument to show the superiority of Jesus to Moses. Jesus is to Moses as the actual builder is to the house being built. And I hope you understand that. So what God was doing through his servant Moses is building a house, whereas Moses was also part of that house. But he's saying that Jesus was actually the one there building it through Moses. 
So the glory that is due, Jesus is the one who's overseeing and building the house, using Moses to do it. Moses has glory to some degree as the builder or as the house being built. In this analogy, the author claims that Jesus is, in fact, God. And if you're, if you're paying attention, you can see that. This isn't a late Christian development. He says, the builder of all things is God. So the one building the house with Moses the servant back in the Old Testament wasn't just God in some general sense or the Father. It was Jesus. And the builder of all things is God. So Jesus is God, and he was the one in the Old Testament building that house through his servant Moses. Don't miss that. And here we get the primary verse that compares their ministries. Verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So a few things to note here. One, it is the same house. Moses was faithful in all God's house, and then Christ is faithful over God's house. It's the same people of God, right? It's not like Moses was doing his own thing with the people of Israel, and then Jesus came and did something else completely with the church. The people of God have always been those who share in the faith of Abraham, right? So it is all God's house, and we are the same house, Another point of similarity is they were both faithful. Now, you may be thinking in your minds, if you've watched you know, the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, uh, Moses wasn't a perfect guy, was he? No, and he was actually prohibited from entering the promised land because of his unfaithfulness. But when it comes to administering the work of God for the house of God in building that house, being used as part of the house to build the house, he was faithful. And the author says both are faithful. So how is Jesus counted of more glory? How is he considered worthy of more glory than Moses if it's the same house and they're both faithful? This is where your attention to detail has to come into play. Now, Moses was faithful in God's house. But Christ is faithful over God's house. Very important. The meaning packed into those little Greek words is very significant. Moses was in God's house, being faithful as part of the house himself. Just like pastors nowadays are also sheep. They're shepherds and sheep at the same time under the great shepherd. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. This, this is speaking about how Jesus relates to the churches. He is the church's head. He is the great shepherd. He is the one who builds his church. Also, Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So the servant serves for a while, but the son remains forever. He's the heir of all things. So this is another contrast between Moses and Jesus. And if you're, if you're having trouble understanding why this is so significant, why this comparison between Moses and Jesus, just hang with me. 
It'll make sense. But what the author wants you to feel and understand is the way that Jesus is superior to Moses. It's not just all the ways that we want him to be and that we feel the benefits are. It's that he outstrips Moses in glory because he is the very son of God, not just the servant of God. He is the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah. But he is the son who is to inherit the house and rule over the house. He's also the one to come, right? So there's this contrast in Scripture between the first and the latter, right? Who is greater, right? And Jesus even trips up the Pharisees when he says, how can David call him Lord when he is his son? Because the greater is always the former, right? David has more glory than any of his progeny because he's first. You're of the house of David, So how can David look to the future and call the promised Messiah Lord if he's his son? So God flips this on its head. This idea of the second one being lesser than the first. And basically the idea is if the first were really that great, there wouldn't be a need for a second one to come. If Moses were the final end of all the prophets, the greatest ever and we didn't need a second covenant, then there wouldn't be a prophecy given to Moses himself saying that there would be a second prophet coming like me. Also, here's another way that Jesus is superior and his ministry is superior, to testify to things coming. The implication here is that the things coming are specifically Jesus We talked about it in chapter one long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But now he has spoken to us by his son. So all of those prophets, especially Moses, were testifying to things to come later. It wasn't all sufficient. It wasn't a self-contained functioning system. They were all built with an inherent inadequacy. The old covenant was never meant to continue forever. And they were testifying to things coming. There will be one who comes to put an end to this, to give you hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. There will be one who comes to write my law on your hearts so you will no longer go astray and no longer have to teach brother his brother. There will be one to finally come and make propitiation for sins. Because even David saw in Psalm 51, the blood of goats and bulls can never take away sins. And then he says this. This is a transitional statement. This is why he's brought up the comparison second half of verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. For the author here, being in his house, we are his house, that is basically synonymous to saying we're in Christ or we are a Christian. And notice very clearly We are his house. We're not in 
his house. This building isn't the house of God. You and I are called the house of God. And then we get this massive conditional phrase. If. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our hope. Uh, and our boasting in our hope. Someone like to sweep all the Bible's conditional statements under the rug. We don't like to talk about them. We like to talk about the transitional statements where, you know, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that has worked now in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived, carrying out the desires of the body and the flesh and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. Right? And how he responded and all that. We, we love those transitions. We don't like conditionals. We are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And I'll clarify again. We've talked about this before in chapter 2. Perfect one-to-one correlation between those whom the Father has given to Jesus and those who will persevere to the end. Names written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. If you are in Christ, you cannot be lost. God doesn't lose what he saves. Period. But what that looks like in your life on a day-to-day basis is steady, not perfect, but steady and continual perseverance. A holding fast. The statement cuts both ways. And I'll start with the obvious. This phrase, I'll just read it again. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This statement hits like a battering ram against those who say or feel or think that you can say one prayer as a kid however sincere you might have been at the time, and then live however you want to live and hold that slip of paper saying, I said a prayer. Christ isn't your hope. Christ isn't your confidence. You're not holding fast to him if that's how you've decided to live. doesn't matter what's happened in the past. If he isn't today your hope, if you are not today holding fast to him, it's not true of you. What is your confidence in that type of framework? It's yourself. It's your life. It's what you want out of your life. It's the experiences you want to have. And you see God as your enemy. Because he's the cosmic killjoy for you. Who says you can't live this way. You can't do that. Like, well, I said a prayer. He'll forgive me. I'll go do what I want to do. That's not someone hoping in God. That's not someone holding fast. Now that's the battering ram. Here's the warm blanket. This is less obvious, but it's the opposite way. You are indeed his house if you hold fast your confidence and your boasting and your hope. I think it's far more likely that there are those in this room who struggle with assurance of salvation There are probably very few if there's probably, hopefully, Lord willing, not anyone in this room who is blatantly rejecting the laws of God, blatantly rejecting the call of holiness and thinking that that's just okay. 
because once saved, always saved. Hopefully that's no one in this room. That's a very seared conscience. And if that is you, please seek help. There are probably many in this room, though, who need some degree of assurance. It's been me at many times. It's been many people close to me. The comfort this verse offers is that if these things are true about you, then you are his house. Indeed, you are his house. This is an intensifying word. Doesn't matter what your spiritual resume is or what you think about what has happened in the past or how messy things have been up to this point. If today your confession is Christ is my hope, Christ is my confidence, and I boast in him today, then you are his house. So let's look at each of these phrases. This phrase, hold fast, we talked about at length in chapter 2. I won't revisit everything that we said there, but I do want to take you to one passage, Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10, starting in verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you this, these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. So this idea of holding fast is kind of a summary for Moses. This, it, it involves obeying, it involves hoping in, it, it's this idea of an exertion of your will that I will not let go of Christ. Trials may come, temptation may come, but if you're holding fast, then you're like that soil, the good soil where the seed fell, and thorns may come up around some seed, and the birds may come and take the seed away in other soil, but... Yours takes its roots deep. And you're holding fast to him. The second phrase here, we're holding fast to our confidence. This type of confidence may look like folly in the eyes of the world. Look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22, if you look in verse, we'll start in verse uh, 7 just to get some context here. This is something that is uh, prophetic about Christ on the cross. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. This type of trust that Jesus had, even on the cross, this confidence that it doesn't matter what's happening in my life, it doesn't matter how bleak things may seem or how silly it seems to those looking on, God is my confidence. I have trusted myself to Him. I don't understand how it's all going to work out. It doesn't look like it's all for my good right now. 
things aren't going well. My confidence is in the Lord. It may seem irrational to those looking on, but this is our confidence. And then we get this word, boasting. As Christians, we're told that we're supposed to be humble. We're not supposed to esteem self highly, but we are told to boast and boast in Christ. And this idea of boasting, it actually comes from the ancient idea of conflict, of war even. So when you would line up between the good guys and the bad guys, hopefully you're the good guys, right, in this mental picture. Hopefully you're not like, well, I'm the bad guy today. Um, You're lining up for battle, and you're about to rush together. What do you do to try and encourage your ranks from just fleeing? Because things are going to go badly for a lot of you. You boast. We have the weapons. Our country is better than yours. We are in the right. And in that war chant, that boasting, you go to the conflict. For the Christian, for the church, Jesus is our boasting. The great conflict which we face is judgment, the very end of the world. And what we say as we confidently look to the assurance of our own demise, it is appointed to man to die once and then comes the judgment. When we look at those grim prospects, we say, Christ is our hope. I shall not fear You look at trouble as the wise woman in Proverbs and laugh. Because Christ is our boast. That's why I read from, or we read rather, from Psalm 62 this morning. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. When's the last time you boasted, even if it was just in your heart of hearts against the enemy trying to assail you with depression or discouragement or anxiety? When was the last time that your heart boasted in your Messiah? I need not fear. You can do whatever you want to me. Jesus is on my side. Jesus will vindicate me. He is Lord, and He will rule over all things. And then He says, Our hope. Is this your hope? Is Christ your hope? It's not about your degree of holiness or sanctification. Though you should be on a trajectory of putting to death the deeds of the flesh, putting off the old self and putting on the new self, living the life that God has given you, as we said last week, being who you are in Christ now. It's not about how well you execute, though, on that. It's not about how well you understand theology or how many books you've read or, how, or even how many Bible verses you memorize. It's not about how well you remember your conversion experience or when or where you came from spiritually. It's about this and who you trust in today, who your hope is today. And if, believer, Jesus Christ is your hope today, 
He is your confidence and your boast. Then God is so committed to the glory and honor of his son that everyone who merely trusts in him shall never be put to shame. Does that degree of commitment of God to his son's glory and exaltation make sense in this context? You can often ask, like, why, why did God require faith? It could have been anything. Why does God require faith? Because those who trust in Jesus, they're saying, you are my hope. You're my trust. I don't have it figured out. I don't live a perfect life. Jesus is my boast. I, I, I put all my trust in him. Those who do that, those who think that way, those who have entrusted themselves to him fully, God is so committed to his son's glory that anyone who is of that disposition in their hearts shall never be put to shame. You will not suffer loss ultimately. It is not right for one who trusts in the Lord to be ultimately in the end disappointed. This is why you need to have a radical understanding of God's commitment to his son's exaltation. This is the parable of the wedding feast. The master sent out invitations to the wedding feast and all the people who received invitations gave excuses. They wouldn't come. Oh, I've, I've bought some land. I just got married myself. All these different excuses of why they won't come to the ruler's, the king's son's wedding. And then he says to his servants, uh, go out and get people. Bring them in from the highways and the byways. My son's wedding banquet will be full. That's how committed God is to the glory and honor due his son. So anyone who trusts in Jesus who says, Jesus is my hope, my boast. That person is safe because God loves his son, Jesus, so much. Now, the reason he's brought up this comparison, let's get back into the text itself here. Between Moses and Jesus is to intensify the call to persevere. Make this your hope and trust. The whole argument here is to show in the verses that follow that the same Lord who responded so severely to those with hard hearts in the day of rebellion is the same Lord who calls you to persevere today. And Jesus is greater than Moses. So how much more greater is the call of perseverance? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, just as a parenthetical before we move on, this could be literally translated, as the Holy Spirit is saying. Many of you might want to hear a fresh word from God. You're holding it in your hands. Now, the Lord can move you and speak and move and direct us in very powerful ways, but the way that we know that that is the Lord and not our own hearts telling us what we want to hear or the enemy telling us things that we think will be from God that aren't is through the Bible. The Holy Spirit is saying, he's actively speaking in the very words of Scripture to you and me. You want to hear the voice of God today, right now? 
read the scriptures. Before we look closely at the biblical quotation in the next few verses, 7 through 11, I need to do a little bit of work because these verses are difficult. The Christian life, we tend to divide the Christian life in things we do and things we think, right? The life of the mind and the life that we live out in front of other people. For the believer, and because of our inadequacy, these will always be in some degree of conflict. What you believe in your mind, or what you think in your mind, and what you actually do. Like the Father says in Mark, I believe, help my unbelief. This is how most of us understand the Christian life. The things we think, and the things we do. And that is true, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the only way you think about the Christian life, then you're missing out on something that I would say is the most significant portion of the Christian life and what it means to be sanctified, what it means to be made more holy. It's this idea of exposure. And that may sound odd to you that I would choose that word, exposure. Beholding is another way to think about it. Exposing your hearts to the truth about God. So there are two options when you're exposed to God. You can reject it, and that leads to unbelief. It leads to denial. It leads to disobedience. Or you can embrace that view of God, and it leads to your yes and amen. A delight. Acceptance and obedience. And this is how you get Pharisees. You get people who have no interest in the true biblical vision of God and who He is, but have just fixated on the law, the do's and the don'ts. And they may be very good at it. For you, believer, for those of you who want a deeper relationship with the Lord, the key beginning point for you is exposing yourself to the true God who is there. That you would see Him with nothing held back. And that is my most solemn responsibility to you as your pastor been here four months, a little over four months. And, you know, six months is usually like the honeymoon period. You know, things may go downhill from here. I may have already disappointed a lot of you. And if I haven't, if you're like, oh, no, it's probably going to happen at some point. But my most solemn responsibility to you is to expose you to the holy God of the Bible and to hold nothing back. Because my confidence is, Because the Bible promises this, when you see that grand vision of God, that is what leads to joyful obedience. That is what leads to changed lives. A barometer of your health as a believer and the quality of the things you bring into your life is how often this happens. How often are you in awe? Of the God who is there. Maybe it's never happened for you. Maybe God is in a box for you. How you define him. How you think about him. One of the reformers. John Calvin would say. In most of his sermons. Near the end. Let us fall before the majesty. Of our great God. 
my intentions for you and where you need to be brought as a believer, the things that you should be okay with bringing into your lives are things that help you on this trajectory of exposing yourselves to that God. And I say all of this to set up the right heart to have as we read these next verses. Because the God presented in these verses runs counter to the God that we're comfortable with most of the time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. The idea of a God who is provoked at unbelief, a God who has wrath and makes promises, vows to himself in that wrath is extremely offensive. A few weeks ago, we talked at length about this idea of propitiation and how this is necessary for us to maintain a biblical view of God, so we won't revisit all of that, but it In God's providence, after that sermon, I had many discussions with many people about God's wrath. And the idea is, how can we speak about God having wrath? Why should we emphasize his wrath? Why should we revisit his wrath and appreciate this if God is love? John even says God is love. But what John is meaning there is not that the essence of God is love. Because love, contrary to what Disney and the world would tell you, isn't a thing. There's not like an amorphous mass out there that's called love. Love is a commitment of the will. And what John means when he says God is love is that the most basic fundamental commitment of God in his heart is love. And because of that love, because of that basic rooted commitment of God, he also has wrath. I love my wife. Not perfectly, but I love her and I try to live in a way that exemplifies that love. I love my kids, not perfectly, and they drive me crazy sometimes, but I love them. And if you were to harm them, if you were to dishonor them, to disrespect them, to malign them, the proper just response is wrath. Most of the time when we feel that, it's self-centered. And this is why the Bible says the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Because it's self-centered. But Jesus feels wrath. Paul has anger and frustrations. You can't, I mean, I can't even say what Paul says in Galatians because it's PG-13, right? Of how he responds to the false teachers. When you have a correct understanding of what God loves and what he treasures, when that thing is assaulted and maligned and killed, he has wrath. So the essence of the question we have to ask in light of these verses is this. What does God love most? And yes, that is an appropriate question to ask. What does God love most? 
God loves God most. This is why the wrath of God is offensive. We are okay with him being a jealous God. If that means that he also esteems us very, very highly. We understand the idea that if you assault what God loves or what I love, that the proper response is some kind of justice or some type of desire for justice. But we do have a problem of us not being the center of the universe. Do you ever stop and ponder what it means for God to be jealous and that he will share his glory with no one? The example I'll give for this to justify or to give you proof for God having the highest regard for God is how he responds to Israel's idolatry, referencing some of the same events that led to him swearing in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. What's the first thing they do when they leave Egypt? Moses goes up the mountain to hear from God after they themselves have heard the voice of God. Like, well, Moses has been up there too long. Let's make a calf. Let's worship it. And God says to Moses, go over there. Like, get away from these people so I can destroy them. And I'll start a whole new nation from you. What does Moses respond with? He doesn't say, but God, don't you love them? Don't you care for them? He says, what will you do for your great name? The Egyptians will hear and they'll say, with evil intent, he brought them out. What will you do for your great name? How will you magnify your glory if you destroy these people now? And God relents. It's the same Hebrew word for repent. Not that that would have been evil for God to do, but he turns away from his just intentions and has mercy for his namesake. This is echoed in the prophets over and over and over. For my namesake, I save you. For my namesake, I turn away my wrath. How should my name be profaned? God's wrath is the holy and just response on his part to his glory and his name being profaned. So with all that said, when you read these verses, this is how the author is trying to intensify his call to you to repent and to hold fast to Christ. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God loving God most is actually great news for you because that means that the love he has for you in Christ is not the love he has for creatures, for created things. It's the very love he has for himself. Through faith in Christ, we're united with Christ. So the very love that God has for himself has been poured out on you. This eternal blazing center of what it means for God to be God and to regard his name so highly that Ferocious commitment to his glory is what he sets on you. For your good, your joy, your eternal 
security. That's the invitation. It's not be loved more than the other people. It's enter into the love of God that he has for himself. This is the only way you can understand what he prays in John 17. I in them and you in me so that we would be perfectly one. That doesn't mean we become God. It means that we enter into the love that God has for himself as his people. How great an invitation that is. Many of us like seeing the videos that people post of proposals, right? And how awkward they can be. The guy gets down on his knee or does some creative thing and proposes. And then there are the, there are the few that are rejections, right? Like at a ball game, they turn the camera and this guy's proposing. You can't hear the words, but then she goes like, no. And everyone gasps. This is God's proposal of love to you. Hold fast to him. Hold fast to his hope that he gives you. Enter into the love that God has for himself that essentially is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, be united with him through faith. That's the invitation. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not spurn the love of God. May today be the day of salvation. Father, I pray that we would take seriously the vision of you presented in the Bible that we would not turn away from or ignore that full-blown picture of you as the glorious God of all things. Please give us strength. And at the end of it all, help us understand how committed you are to your own glory, how committed you are to yourself, and that we wouldn't view you as wrong or bad, because of that, but that we would rejoice that you would be our boast. We would understand how right you are to glorify yourself. And that we would be stunned by your invitation to us to enter in to that love and to take part in that glorifying of your name. And I pray for those in this room who have never entrusted themselves to Christ like that, that today would be the day of salvation, that your spirit would move powerfully, take off the veil that's over their eyes, and they would see the glory of Christ. And I pray these things in his name for his sake. Amen.